from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in search of unity, aren't we? Trying to bring the country together, despite all the division, the rancor, the anger, the rancor, anger, the rancor. Well, one thing we that is knowable is that uh, the religious, the members of the two major Abrahamic religions in this country, the the adherents thereto, do agree on one thing because it's it's in Genesis, the very top of the Bible, top of the Bible too, everybody, and that's God gave us dominion, us. All of us humans. See, we're together already about this. And here's some evidence that we're getting to work on the project. Deadline Sacramento state officials, those are California state officials, best place for them, confirmed dire predictions of catastrophic fish kills this week. It's due to sizzling water temperatures in California's largest river, the Sacramento. They announced this week that just 2% of winter-run Chinook juvenile salmon survived the summer. I know they're Chinooks, but no. The alarming percentage of juvenile salmon killed on the Sacramento surpasses the scope of die-offs recorded in the state's recent drought years. It has officials sounding the alarm about the potential permanent collapse of the endangered species. We're firing them. We get to do that. Quote, the current drought situation is likely to produce very bad returns of fish three to four years from now. And if we keep having these incredibly bad years, we will not dig out of our population decline, said the director of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. He adds, we've got to accept that reality. Us. You know who's got to accept that reality? The damn salmon. As in previous drought years, like 2014 and 2015, the federal government and state have been unable to keep water temperatures cool enough to sustain both eggs and juvenile salmon at several important rivers and streams. The lack of rain, record-breaking heat, and deliveries of subsidized water to contractors during the drought have created a perilous situation for fish and wildlife. It was data presented to a state fisheries committee hearing this week, and according to it, an estimated 75% of winter-run Chinook eggs cooked this summer on the upper Sacramento. Worse, experts believe... And you can't, you know, not scrambled, not even an omelet. Worse, experts believe nearly all the remaining salmon that did hatch soon died from a combination of low river flows and natural or human-caused mortality. You and me, babe. It appears that only 1% to 2% of these endangered baby salmon survived just the first few months of their lives. Testified the uh, director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. An estimated 3% of those Chinook juveniles survived in 2014, just 5% in 2015, both of which were extreme drought years. The lack of salmon able to return to spawn and replenish the population will have significant impacts on the state's commercial fishing industry down the road. And, of course, that's not where you catch the salmon. They're in the water. To account for the disastrous summer on the Sacramento and other rivers like the Klamath and the Feather, fishing groups want the state and feds to ramp up fish, fish, fish hatchery operations that prevented the total collapse of salmon populations during the last drought. We kill them, we bring them back because we have dominion, you see. Also, 
the widely used pesticide thiaclopryd can cause a large-scale decline in freshwater insects. Discovered by researchers from the Living Lab in Leiden. Leiden, which is in the Netherlands last time I looked. For three months, they counted the flying insects in the 36 ditches of the lab. The researchers appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Freshwater insects were exposed to different concentrations of theaclopryd. This substance belongs to the group of, neo, group of neonicotinoids, the world's most widely used group of insecticides. We used realistic concentrations, says the chief researchers, con- corresponding to concentrations that actually are measured in surface waters out in the uh, wild. So, yeah, big surprise. Insecticides kill a lot of insects. For your listening pleasure, ladies and gentlemen. And the good news, things come, things go. What appear, uh, appears to be on the wane is um, the Delta variant of uh, COVID-19. On the wane soon, out of here, where I'm broadcasting from, New Orleans, Louisiana, the south, much of the south, um, kind of moving north as winter approaches, but um, authorities, experts, you know, people who are supposed to listen to say uh, this is the waning of the Delta variant and unwaning, apparently, the Me Too thing. On the uh, downslope, the uh, evidence that I would proffer in that regard is that uh, there are comeback tours in the uh, offing or in the inning from the Minnesota Strokers, Al Franken and uh, you know, this guy. So the Minnesota Strokers are back. Hello, welcome to the show.
From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of Le Show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eversall III. Wow. That's weird. Yeah. Same thing, all over again. All right, anyway, here's news of the Olympic movement. Chinese authorities have been accused of, quote, continuously stymieing, unquote, attempts by foreign media to cover the Winter Olympics. The charge is that the Chinese authorities are denying or ignoring requests for access and following, harassing, and abusing journalists. In a scathing statement this week, the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, which acts on behalf of foreign media in China, called for transparency and clarity from China's National Olympic Organizing Committee. The club also accused the committee of failing to uphold the IOC's charter requiring it to ensure the fullest media coverage possible for the widest global audience. They're saying this like it's a bad thing. Our members repeated inquiries towards Beijing Organizing Committee for the Olympic Games on how international media can report on the Games have been met with conflicting answers or neglected completely, the uh, Foreign Correspondents Club said in a statement. FCCC members report spending weeks trying to obtain contract details for media from media facilitators only to... Tom? Made out of Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Only to receive dismissive or inaccurate information from them. In the past year, according to the Foreign Correspondents Club, foreign court journalists have been largely unable to access press conferences or events that were open to domestic media, including the arrival of the Olympic flame. Foreign journalists who attempt to register events are denied because the Beijing Committee limits attendance to only their chosen media outlets claim the event is full or because they require participants to submit COVID test results with an impossible timeline of only a few hours. Conditions for visiting accredited foreign journalists were also unclear, according to the club, including whether they would be allowed to travel within and outside Beijing and when quarantine measures are required of them. China hosts 
the Winter Olympics next February, you see. China's enacted a closed-loop management system for the games, within which all participants and employees can only move between games-related venues for training competitions and work on a dedicated transport system. Beijing's relationship with international media has plummeted in recent years. We may not get all the Olympic media coverage we're tired of. And modern pentathlon's governing body, UIPM, said it will hold talks with athletes next week after more than 650 of them called for the executive board to step down following its decision to drop horse riding from the Olympic program. The UIPM decided this week to remove horse riding from the 2028 LA Games in the wake of an outcry after a German coach reacting to a horse that refused to jump at a fence at this year's Tokyo Games punched the horse in the head. Literally, as Joe Biden likes to say when he's not kidding, I'm not kidding. Athletes, including current and former Olympic medalists, signed a letter which said the executive board had, quote, undermined 109 years of modern pentathlon by taking a decision without consulting them and the federations. PETA also wants horses out of the Olympics. I guess they don't belong in a movement. But as far as we're concerned, we all need one. Every day! Strange that John Williams decided to take a... uh, Meal break right in the middle of it. But, you know, there's nothing we can do about these things. Ladies and gentlemen, you're probably aware that uh, Joe Biden is president. Let's start there. Okay, we've lost a few along the way, but the rest of us. And that uh, he was celebrating on Saturday of this weekend the passage by the Congress, the long-delayed passage of the infrastructure bill that will... uh, plow a lot of money into uh, (laughs) railroads, uh, as well as uh, other forms of public transport, fixing highways and bridges and a lot of other different things. And uh, said President Biden held a sort of a a victory lap press conference in which he talked about a lot of things um, and uh, renewed something he has said I think quite frequently in reference to the putative recipients recipients of a lot of the aid from both the infrastructure bill now passed and the uh, Build Back Better bill still winding its torturous path through the Senate. And uh, that thing that he often says is this. The, 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 the wealthy are, are, are value-added to the country, but they didn't build a country. Hard-working middle-class folks are the ones that built this country. Now, that is, um, I, I may make so bold as to suggest, evidence that uh, although he might have been quite attentive, Joe Biden, to um, the man he served as vice president, he wasn't particularly attentive to the words of that man's wife. 
when she pointed out that the building he was standing in yesterday, the White House, far from being built by middle-income workers, was to a, a certain extent built by slaves. This from the Smithsonian Magazine. What documentation exists today shows that many of Washington, D.C.'s most iconic government buildings, including the White House, were built by enslaved people. In 2005, Congress put together a task force to shed light on the subject. After months of research, the commission announced that while it would never be able to tell the full story of the enslaved laborers who built those buildings, there was no doubt that they were intricately involved in the work. And that was confirmed by PolitiFact. Indifference by earlier historians, poor record-keeping, and the silence of the voiceless classes have impeded our ability in the 21st century to understand fully the contributions and privations of those who toiled over the seven decades from the first cornerstone laying to the day of emancipation in the District of Columbia. That's from Senate historian Richard Baker and Chief of the House of Representatives Office of History, Kenneth Cato. Come as no surprise that enslaved laborers were used to build the nation's capital. Washington was built on land ceded to the federal government by Virginia and Maryland. They liked slavery there. So uh, attention, attention, President Biden. Nope. <laughs> not, not, uh, not even close. But congratulations anyway. And now, news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. You know what the dawn chorus is? It's a phrase I wasn't familiar with until I spent some time in the uh, United Kingdom. And it's um, the concatenation, thank you, of uh, bird call, bird song, early in the morning, the dawn chorus. Here's an example from Botswana. I know that because I recorded these sounds myself when I was in Botswana a few years ago. Natural sounds and birdsong in particular play a key role in building and maintaining our connection with nature. A major new study from the University of East Anglia reveals that the sounds of spring are changing. Dawn choruses across North America and Europe are becoming quieter and less varied. An international team of researchers led by the University of East Anglia developed a new technique combining world-leading citizen science bird, bird monitoring data with recordings of individual species in the wild to reconstruct the soundscapes of more than 200,000 sites over the last quarter century. The lead author of the study, explains the benefits of nature contact are widespread from improved physical health and psychological well-being 
to increase likelihood of participating in pro-environmental behavior. Bird song plays an important role in defining the quality of nature experiences, widespread declines in bird populations and shifts in species distributions in response to climate change mean that the acoustic properties of natural soundscapes are likely to be changing. Historical sound recordings don't exist for most places, so we needed to develop a new approach to examine this, unquote. They didn't ask me. I had this. Now I'm sharing it with you. Annual bird count data from North American Breeding Bird Survey and Pan-European Common Bird Market, uh, Marketing Monitoring Scheme sites were combined with recordings for over a thousand species from an online database of bird calls and songs to reconstruct historic soundscapes. They were then quantified using four index indices designed to measure the distribution of acoustic energy across frequencies and time. These indices are driven by song complexity and variety across contributing species, but quantify the diversity and intensity of each soundscape as a whole. We found a widespread decline in the acoustic diversity and intensity of natural soundscapes driven by changes in the composition of bird communities, said the lead author. The study was published in the journal Nature Communications, which is about nature and communications. These results, said the lead author, suggest that the soundtrack of spring is getting quieter and less varied, and that one of the fundamental pathways through which in humans engage with nature is in chronic decline with potentially widespread implications for human health and well-being. Given the people predominantly hear rather than see birds, I blame the birds for that, reductions in the quality of natural soundscapes are likely to be the mechanism through which the impact of ongoing population declines is most keenly felt by the general public. Dig them. They're going fast. Everything must go. And global warming has caused extreme ice-melting events in Greenland to become more frequent and intense, more intensity, less intensity, more intensity in this case over the past 40 years, raising sea levels and flood risk worldwide. That's according to research from University College London. Over the past decade alone, 3.5 trillion tons of ice has melted from Greenland's surface and flowed into the ocean. That's enough to cover the United Kingdom with around 15 meters of meltwater, or all of New York City with around 4,500 meters. They say that like it's a bad thing. Published in Nature Communications, the new study is the first to use satellite data to detect this phenomenon known as ice sheet runoff from space funded by the European Space Agency. The study used measurements from a European satellite mission. Thanks, Elon, to uh, using estimates of surface elevation change over time. Cryosat 2 provided scientists with a long history of data over that the, no other spacecraft could reach since its launch over 11 years ago, transforming science's capacity to study the polar region. Both of them remains key to research and knowledge critical to decision-making on the planet's health. Study co-author says observations show that extreme melt events in Greenland have become more frequent and more intense, as well as more erratic, 
I know the feeling, babe, which is a global problem. Monitoring from space enables us to cover the whole of Greenland repeatedly, which can't be done by teams on the ground. Bored with Greenland, are we? This is the first time runoff has ever been measured directly from space, allowing us to remotely observe hard-to-explore regions of the ice sheets and to use these observations to form an enhanced understanding of why this is happening and what we can do about it in the future. You think? Really? All right. I'll take your word for it, sir. That's uh, News of the Warm, copyrighted feature, followed closely by News of the Warm. No, News of the Godly. Too much news. Always too much news. The French Catholic Church bears institutional responsibility for the thousands of child abuse cases documented in a report released in October. French bishops said that a couple of days ago, Friday of this week. French Church bears responsibility, say the bishops. That, I guess, is progress in the world of the godly. The church allowed the abuse to become systemic, said Archbishop Eric du Moulin Beaufort, chair of France's Bishops' Conference. This responsibility implies a duty to provide justice and reparation, Moulin Beaufort said. He made the comments at the conference's annual meeting following a vote by the bishops. In, on October, you may recall, an independent commission published findings on child sex abuse in France's Catholic Church between 1950 and 2020, detailing how an estimated 3,000 or more child abuse, abusers, two-thirds of them priests, worked in the Catholic Church in France over the seven decades. There were an estimated 216,000 victims of such abuse, the vast majority of which were young boys from a variety of social backgrounds. Commission recommended the church accept civil and social responsibility for the abuses separately from the individual responsibility of the abusers. It also said financial compensation, dollars, should be calculated for each individual case according to the severity of the abuses suffered. No, yours was just $50 abuse. I'm sorry. Unlike in other countries where child sex scandals have forced the Catholic Church towards accountability, the Spanish Church has avoided investigating alleged abuses by its clergy, inciting the fury of victims, according to Agence France Presse. In recent decades, thousands have spoken out about harrowing abuses by clergy across the United States, Europe, Australia, and beyond, prompting church probes in many nations, seeking redress for the victims. In uh, France alone, a study commissioned by the French Catholic Church found uh, that quite frightening number of uh, victims, 216,000 minors. That's cute. <laughs> it's all surprises here on the show today, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, in Spain, the point is, there are no official statistics on child sex abuse. The church says it has counted just 220 cases since 2001 and has ruled out actively investigating any such allegations. 
The, ch- the case of the church in Spain is shameful, says uh, one victim abused as a teenager at a school run by Catholic priests in Madrid. Spain is a deeply Catholic country, always has been, hence the Inquisition. The church in Spain has not explained why it is refusing to hold a comprehensive investigation, saying only it has put in place protocols to manage allegations of abuses by its clergy. And the church in Spain has declined an attempt uh, to uh, answer questions posed by Agence France Press. Ah, the French. That was their only quote on the subject. Of the French, that is to say. William Dean Doc Gallagher, the self-styled money doctor, was sentenced this week to three life sentences in prison, plus another 30 years behind bars, just to make it official, in Fort Worth this week. It's a result of his guilty plea this August to charges stemming from a Ponzi scheme he ran in uh, Hearst. We'll find out where Hearst is later in this broadcast, that bilked senior citizens out of millions of dollars. Judge Elizabeth Beach sentenced Gallagher to life terms on three charges. Deception for an amount greater than 200000 theft of property more than three hundred grand, and misapplication of fiduciary property or property financial institution more than 300000 Doc Gallagher, Gallagher is one of the worst offenders I have seen, said. Oh, this is uh, in Texas, Fort Worth, to be exact. That was a quote from the chief of the DA's elder fraud scheme team. He ruthlessly stole from his clients who trusted him for almost a decade. He amassed $32 million in loss to all of his clients and exploited many other individuals. Last year, he pleaded guilty to similar charges in Dallas County and was sentenced there to 25 years in prison. He ran the Gallagher Financial Group that advertised on Christian radio with the tagline, See you in church on Sunday. He promoted his investment business in books such as Jesus Christ Money Master. It's better than Superstar, isn't it, really, now? And on Christian radio broadcasts. More than a dozen senior victims testified during a three-hour court hearing about losing anywhere from fifty to $600,000 that they invested in the Gallagher Financial Group. Some had to sell their homes, borrow money from their children. What are they going to tell their children? The money doctor, ladies and gentlemen. See you in church. Now we can reply, see you in jail. And placing limits on the money juries can award to lawsuit winners is urgently needed to restore balance, fairness, and predictability into Ohio's court system, said the authors of Ohio's 2005 tort reform. The absence of such maximums, they said, would hold the door for open runaway juries demanding corporations pay outrageous sums in legal disputes. Ohio businesses would face a competitive disadvantage to foreign competition, stifling development. In the 15 years since tort reform was passed, the law yielded an unexpected use, stripping child rape victims of millions of dollars in legal damages. These uh, million or multi-million dollar settlements in child rape cases were reduced to the legal maximum of 
$50,000 thanks to tort reform. The Ohio Supreme Court has uh, reviewed, uh, agreed to review one of these cases coming up. The plain text of the law doesn't mention sexual assault, and it's unclear whether the law's effect on child rape victims is the product of design or oversight. Which would you prefer, ladies and gentlemen? Vote now.
celebrating and bemoaning the end of daylight savings time. This is the show from New Orleans, and now, ladies and gentlemen. Samsung Electronics was asked by a user if uh, if he could disable large and intrusive advertisements splattered across his new smart TV's program guide. Ross McKillicott felt distinctly undersold when he turned the set on to find the internet-connected device displaying advertising on its electronic program guide. If you press the menu button to change between, like, TV and, or Netflix or whatever, even different sources, there's an advertising panel. It seems that people accept this, he said. Hey, Ross, congratulations on your new TV. You wouldn't be able to disable the ads, we're afraid. Aha. That was the tweet reply from Samsung. The more annoying advert, he said to the uh, British tech journal, The Register, is the one that appears on the application menu on every menu level. He says such a problem is not new. About a year ago, other Samsung TV customers began wondering where the giant advertisements spattered all over their TV's user interface had come from. I got a clue. Not heaven. This kind of subtle but invasive monitoring was the subject of a warning by an American university professor a couple of years ago, describing it as a, quote, cesspit of surveillance, unquote. That's a good advertising slogan. Come into the cesspit of surveillance. The devices can pose a security risk unless they're treated like any other Internet-connected ad- device. As uh, Samsung itself reminded watchers a couple of years ago, If you're buying a Samsung TV, smart TV, they don't make the dumb ones anymore. Just remember, you're not only paying for a big panel so you can watch lovely pictures, you're paying to be a part of Samsung's global TV advertising network. That's right. Not just the networks are an ad network. Now the people who make the boxes are too. More disturbing, perhaps, a joint probe conducted by the Australian Information Commissioner and the U.K. Information Commissioner's Office has found that facial recognition as a service being provided by Clearview AI breaches Australian privacy laws. What Clearview Clearview AI does is it collects photos from the Internet, uses artificial intelligence to identify the people depicted, and then offers law enforcement agencies a search engine to help ID suspects. The firm proudly touts scenarios such as using a profile pic on a suspected criminal's Facebook page to match a photo of the suspect with his real name at a local country club. Once the suspect's name is known, the investigation proceeds more quickly in this particular case and easily than would otherwise have been possible. The... uh, Info commissioners of the two countries promised to investigate Clearview's image scrapping practices last July. Australia's commissioner, 
delivered its findings this week. They're damning. Clearview collected personal information unfairly and without consent, failed to inform those whose photos it identified, didn't bother checking if its assessments were accurate, and paid scant attention to Aussie privacy law. Quote, when Australians use social media or professional networking sites, they don't expect their facial images to be collected without their consent by a commercial entity to create biometric templates for completely unrelated identification purposes, said the Australian Information Commissioner. How does he know? In the full report, the Commissioner, it's a her, the Commissioner, rejects Clearview's argument that it is exempt from Australian law because downloading images from the U.S. doesn't equate to doing business down under. The document offers considerable detail about how and why the company's activities do in fact represent a breach of Australia's privacy laws and principles. And as a result, Clearview has since since stopped offering its services in Australia and made its new business inquiry webpage inaccessible from Australian addresses. Says the commissioner, this case reinforces the need to strengthen protections through the current review of the Privacy Act, including restricting or prohibiting practices such as data scraping personal information from online platforms. If they can do it, why can't we? It also raises questions about whether online platforms are doing enough to prevent and detect scraping of personal information, the Aussie Information Commissioner added. Clearview recently proudly revealed it has surpassed 10 billion images in its databases and has improved its ability to work with blurry images or photos depicting people wearing masks. So no, your mask doesn't prevent you from being scraped by Clearview AI. It is, as we note, repeatedly on this program, a smart, 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 smart world. And now... He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector. General, oh yeah. The State Department's internal watchdog here in uh, the United States said this week that nearly a nearly $6,000 bottle of Japanese whiskey given to former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, it was reported missing and it remains unaccounted for. Mike, where's the whiskey, babe? The Department's Inspector General also said that the gift vault in which presents given to senior U.S. officials are stored, was found to be in a, quote, state of disarray, unquote, when the Biden administration took office in January. It says new safeguards and controls are needed to ensure that gifts to senior U.S. officials are properly counted for. It's a bottle of 30-year-old Suntory Hibiki whiskey given to Pompeo by the Japanese government couple years ago, along with a 22-carat gold commemorative coin worth $560. The items were reported missing in August. At the time, a Pompeo representative said the former Secretary General knew nothing about the gift or the Inspector General's inquiry. Later, it emerged a collection of porcelain and copper vases valued at $20,000 that the U.S. government had bought as gifts for leaders attending the Group of Seven summit before it was canceled. Also, are missing. 
Inspector General reported those vases, as well as an unspecified number of commemorative G7 pewter trays, marble trinket boxes, and leather portfolios, had been found in storage. We found the trinket trays, ladies and gentlemen. The Pentagon determined its procedures failed to prevent the botched drone strike that killed 10 people in Kabul in August, civilians all, during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The strike did not break any laws, said the Air Force's Inspector General, Sami Saeed, led the Pentagon's investigation. He described the tragedy as, quote, an honest mistake, unquote. No single person was responsible for the flawed decisions that led to the airstrike, he said. His report is classified, so you don't really know exactly how tortured the logic is, but it's been forwarded to commanders who have the authority to discipline those involved. They can also fire some of them. The officials who authorized the strike were located at a military base in Qatar, kind of a distance away from Afghanistan, but that's what radio is for. Uh, They believed they were targeting an imminent threat, Saeed said. The assessment, which was primarily driven driven by the interpretation of intelligence and observed movement of the vehicle and occupants over an eight-hour period, was regrettably inaccurate. In fact, the vehicle, its occupant, and contents did not pose any risk to U.S. forces. Seven children were in the car. Crucial little piece of intelligence, which apparently didn't go across the lines. And uh, they were killed by a Hellfire missile fired by a Reaper drone. Well, the names are good. Hellfire and Reaper. They may, they may be scarier than the drone itself. No, it killed people. Federal watchdog this week blasted the broken culture of the VA, Veterans Administration, the Veterans Health Administration particularly, in regards to patient safety and said major reforms are needed to protect the lives of vulnerable individuals who rely on the medical system. That's according to the Inspector General for Health Care Inspections at the VA office. Despite employing hundreds of thousands of qualified and dedicated cl- clinical and support staff, some leaders across very l- various levels of the Veterans Health Administration do not consistently do not consistently ensure the safety of the veterans they serve, said the IG's office. And I've shared with you over the years reports from the Special Inspector General on Afghanistan Reconstruction, the CIGAR. He said Friday he faced recent pressure from the State Department to redact some of their reports while noting that the Pentagon classified much of its work detailing the failings of the country's own military forces. John Sopko referenced numerous attempts to impede his work, saying the U.S. agencies have not made honest reporting easy for Seagar. Shortly after the fall of Kabul, the State Department wrote to me and other oversight agencies requesting to temporarily suspend access to all audit inspection and financial audit reports on our website because the department was afraid that information included in those reports could put Afghan, Afghan allies, allies at risk. He said, despite repeated requests, state was never able to describe any specific threats to individuals that were supposedly contained in our reports. Nor, he said, did the State Department ever explain how removing our reports now could possibly protect anyone since many of these reports were years old 
and already extensively disseminated worldwide. Nevertheless, with great reservation, I acceded to State's initial request because it was made at the height of the emergency evacuation from Afghanistan. Then State returned with another request, a spreadsheet with 2,400 items it wanted redacted. The CIGAR reviewed them and said all but four were without merit. What are they, what are they trying to cover up now? Little late department. News of Inspectors General. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now quickly, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. A truck driver who ousted the powerful New Jersey Senate president in recent election has apologized for social media posts, including ones where he called Islam a false religion, compared vaccine mandates to the Holocaust, and defended rioters at the Capitol. Republican Edward Durr called himself a passionate guy and apologized to anyone whose feelings he had hurt. Media outlets found the posts from Durr on Twitter and Facebook late this week, although by Friday his Twitter account was no longer visible. That's the sincerest apology of all. Southwest Airlines has issued a formal apology and is opening an internal investigation after one of its pilots finished off a flight last week by saying, quote, let's go, Brandon, over the intercom to passengers. The phrase has become a colloquial code for F. Joe Biden among right-wing supporters. Do you know this story? The, uh, there was a uh, NASCAR driver, Brandon Brown, when he won his first ever NASCAR Affinity Series beginning of October. Fans began chanting F. Joe Biden during the post-race interview. The NBC reporter interviewing him heard something else entirely, interpreted it as let's go Brandon, and that made it code. The Southwest Airlines team apologized when the pilot used the phrase, let's go, Brandon, over the PA system, saying it brought audible gasps from some passenger. Southwest is conducting an internal investigation. It does not reflect the Southwest hospitality and inclusiveness for which we are known to strive to provide each day on every flight. Another driver in NASCAR, Kyle Busch apologized via Twitter a week ago after he used the R-word, according to Sports Illustrated, during a post-race interview with NBC Sports. The veteran driver used a derogatory word meant to describe people with intellectual disabilities while venting about a passing maneuver from another driver after a race at Martinsville Speedway. Bush later posted a brief apology on Twitter saying he never should have used the term. He was eliminated from postseason contention with last Sunday's result. The Archbishop of Canterbury this week said he was unequivocally sorry for suggesting that failure to stop climate change could bring about as grave a result as that of the Nazi war crimes. Justin Welby said he meant to highlight the gravity of global warming. He was wrong to draw a comparison with Nazi atrocities, he said. It don't stop. 
Maybe we should be teaching in the schools. He told the BBC the world leaders would be cursed if they didn't urgently find ways to reverse climate change. Climate change would come back to us or to our children and grandchildren. But Stephen Pollard, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, reacted furiously to comparisons drawn with Nazi war crimes. President Biden told world leaders, speaking of the Climate Assembly in uh, Scotland, it's in Glasgow, but it was covered by CNN with reporters in Edinburgh. Note to CNN, that's a different city. Anyway, President Biden told world leaders in Glasgow, the U.S. is back at the table to join and lead the world in combating climate change. He uh, added... I guess I shouldn't apologize, but I do apologize for the fact that the United States in the last administration pulled out of the Paris Accord and put us sort of behind the eight ball, he said at an opening day event. Presidential, a presidential apology, ladies and gentlemen. A, a president apology. Deadline Houston. The uh, iHeart Media stations in Houston, three of them, accidentally aired a commercial congratulating the Astros on a World Series championship. Commercials from Dick's Sporting Goods. The Astros, it turns out, didn't win the World Series, and the three stations have issued apologies for inadvertently airing those commercials. One of the local stations issued the apology on its social media as well. Berlin's police chief apologized for an incident in which officers were pictured practicing push-ups on a part of the German capital's memorial to the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. I guess a German police chief has already apologized for the Holocaust already. Pictures showed uniformed policemen leaning on one of the slabs that makes up the memorial to practice push-ups. Well, you got to have push-ups. Don't you? The British Transport Police has apologized to the British African community for systemic racism and a corrupt officer in the 1970s. A number of young black people back then were jailed for crimes they didn't commit, and Officer Derek Ridgewell gave false evidence at trials of groups of men. Current Chief Constable Lucy Dorsey said, we cannot undo the past, but we can learn from it, unquote. And an Air Force veteran who admitted in court this week that he broke his oath and failed his military training when he participated in the January 6th Capitol riot earned tough words, but overall leniency at his federal sentencing. The uh, gentleman in question spent 20 years in the Air Force, earning a Purple Heart. He and two of his friends walked to the Capitol after attending former President Trump's rally despite the violence around them. He and his two friends went inside the building. I let my emotions guide my actions, he said. He uh, got three years probation. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time, same station on the radio, whenever you want it on your audio device of choice. And it would be just like knowing who built this country. If you'd agree to turn it that, would you? Alrighty, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh-huh. email address for this program. Your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, Cars I Talk t-shirts, and the uh, playlist of the music heard here on all at harryshear.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Sheard. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. It's getting dark now. So long from the Crescent City. <laughs>